are missionaries. And so we're honored to have Rabbi Jack. And I want you to give him a great big summit welcome today as he comes to minister the word. Praise the Lord, brother. Thank you so much. God bless you, Pastor. Praise God. You know what? Let's give God all the praise this morning. He is worthy. Amen? Let's praise the Lord. So I want to let you know the inside track about speakers. Speakers usually come up and they've got prepared stuff, etc. And there's nothing wrong with that. And, and I had some prepared stuff and then Gary's joke came. And Gary, I don't know how to follow that, but I'm probably going to be saying that over and over and over. God is good how much of the time? Blessing to be with you this morning. And by the way, Pastor Mitch and worship team, thank you so much for ushering us into the throne room of God. Amen? While we were worshiping, I was reminded of what uh, King David uh, says in the Psalms. He says, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable unto you, O Lord. Lord, you who are our rock and our redeemer, you who establish peace in the heavens, grant peace unto us and unto all Israel. And we say amen. And the Hebrew of that word meditations actually means songs and worship and praise. So thank you, worship team, for bringing us to that place this morning. Amen. Amen. Such, uh, such an incredible blessing to be with you. And before I get into the message, let me give a little bit of an introduction so that we can get to know one another uh, a little bit better. Because oftentimes when I come to a church and I'm introduced as rabbi, the first thing that people think of is, wow, we don't know how Pastor Milt was able to get a Jewish rabbi to come and preach at a church. But you know, he was singing along to the worship songs. He was mentioning Jesus. He seems to be open. Maybe we got a chance of getting him saved before the service is over. And I just want to let you know Christ is my Lord, Savior, Redeemer, Messiah, God, King, and everything. Are we good? Are we good? So here's how it happened. I'll just kind of give a, a short testimony because, you know, we, we obviously have a service, you know, and, and time allotments. And Pastor Mitt said, like, you know, as long as it gets you out of here before 5 o'clock this afternoon, we'll be fine. But uh, I, was, I was born in a Jewish home uh, in the Holy Land, Brooklyn, New York. And um, <laughs> that's terrible. And it was my parents' desire for me growing up. They said, son, we want you to do three things to honor us as as a Jewish son honors their Jewish family. They said, the first thing we want you to do is to go to Hebrew school to learn the language of your faith. And that was the first thing they wanted me to do, and I did that. And the second thing they wanted me to do is they said, son, when you turn the age of 13, we want you to have a bar mitzvah, a Jewish boy's entry into manhood. And that was the second thing they wanted me to do, and I did that. And the third thing they wanted me to do is they said, son, when the time comes for you to get married, we want you to marry a girl who is Jewish. And that was the third thing they wanted me to do. And two out of three ain't bad. I... uh, When I was about 28, 29, I met and married this gorgeous, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, by the way, this is not going in a Jewish direction so far, uh, Protestant girl from Northeast Philadelphia who grew up going to a private Christian evangelical academy and was raised in the Southern Baptist Church. 
And my family was so not amused by this. And, and uh, I said, Mom and Dad, it's okay, don't worry about it, because I had a plan. And my plan was that upon marrying this woman, I would get her to forget all about this Jesus stuff and convert and become Jewish like me. And that was my plan. And apparently, she also had a plan. And the plan was that God was going to use her to bring this Jewish boy into relationship with his true Savior, Messiah, Lord, God, King, and everything. And by the fact that I'm standing here this morning proclaiming my Christ, guess who's plan one? I want to share with you how she did it, not only because it's a good story, but, you know, the Bible has a special calling for you. You know, the Bible talks about the chosen people. How many of you, by the way, have heard the Jews are called the chosen people? Okay, that's what the Bible tells you, but the Bible tells you something else that you don't also hear. All of you are just as equally chosen. And in Romans 11.11, Paul essentially says, he says, look, let me tell you what God has chosen you for. One of the most beautiful things. God has chosen you to make the Jewish people envious, to provoke us to want to get to know and ask Christ into our lives. And my wife knew that calling. And so very early on in our marriage, and by the way, my wife and I met and married in only three months. And uh, we just, this past January, celebrated our 32-year wedding anniversary. Three months. Three months. And so she, she shared the good news with me very, very early on in our marriage. She opened up the Bible and she said, I want to share with you who your promised Messiah is. And Admittedly, I really did not want to hear what she had to say, but I felt like I was being held captive. I had nowhere to go because we were on our honeymoon. And she said, I want to read some Bible verses to you. And I said, sweetheart, that's fine. You could feel free to start in the book of Genesis. Just don't go past the book of Malachi. Because I knew that if she stayed in my Jewish Bible, that I would have absolutely nothing to worry about because, of course, there's nothing about Jesus in the Old Testament. How many of you know you can find Christ from the first letter of the first word of the first chapter, Genesis, to the last letter of the last word of the last chapter of Revelation? And so my wife said, fine. And she said, can I read something to you now? And I said, sure, go ahead. And she's reading her Bible, and she said, listen. And here's what she read. For he grew up before him like a root, like a tender plant out of dry ground. And he had no beauty to attract us to him, yet he was despised and rejected by men. For he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace, in other words, the guilt of our sins, which rightfully belongs on our shoulders, he took it on his. And by his stripes and by his wounds and by his blood, we are healed. So my wife closed the Bible and looked at me and said, so... And I said, I don't think you listened to me. I said, I told you, I just wanted to hear verses from my Old Testament. I didn't want you going into your New Testament and talking about your Jesus. And some of you were smiling, and you and I both know why. And the smile that she had on her face after I said that got even wider. And she turned the Bible around, and she said, Jack, I just read to you the first five verses out of the book of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. 
She said, hmm, Isaiah, isn't he on your team? (laughs) And I never knew it was in there. And of course, that section is just one of more than 300 prophecies of the Messiah speaking about the fact that Christ would come. How it says he'd be born of a virgin in Genesis 3.15 and Isaiah 7.14. How it said he'd be crucified in Psalm 22. How it says that he indeed would be our mighty God in Isaiah 9.6 and so many more. And the year was 1988 and the month was April and this Jewish boy from Brooklyn, New York gave his life and his heart to the Lord in a little Southern Baptist church in Fort Pierce, Florida. And here we are in Wasilla, Alaska, and God is so good. Amen? (laughs) Praise the Lord. I serve on uh, the staff of Jewish Voice Ministries International, and this is a ministry that stands by the entire Bible, including Romans 1.16, where Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. That alone will preach. For it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, first to the Jews and also to the nations. And I'll talk a little bit more about the ministry in just a little while. But uh, in fact, we've already got the title slide up there on our screen. Great note-taking message today, I'm just letting you know. And the reason that I'm speaking about this is because this time of year right now is a very, very special time for two reasons. The first reason is, guys, just in case you didn't know, Nick and his wife just had their first child, man. Isn't that great? Congratulations, brother. That's wonderful. Congratulations. But the second reason is that this time of year is extremely important prophetically and biblically because it's the time of special annual holy festivals ordained by the Lord. And I know that you're going to be excited about this message because in a moment, I'm going to have you open up your Bibles to to that thrilling and dramatic and gripping place in our Bibles that we all just love to read. Go ahead, open up Leviticus, why don't you? And I want you to turn in your Bibles, please, to Leviticus chapter 23, the 23rd chapter of Leviticus. Let me tell you what's going on here. In Leviticus chapter 23, the Israelites are still wandering in the wilderness, as they will for nearly a 40-year period. And in Leviticus, God tells them, he says, listen, when you finally get out of the desert, and you get into the Holy Land, there are seven annual festivals that I want you to celebrate and observe. Now, I know that you think you know where I'm going, but let me kind of qualify here. Oftentimes, these feasts are festivals are regarded as quote-unquote Jewish feasts, but in actuality, they always were, they are, and they always will be Jesus feasts. They're all about him. So we're not here to do the Jewish thing this morning. We're here to glorify Christ and see Christ through the Old Testament and how he's fulfilled in the new. Amen? And so there are seven annual feasts. There are four in the spring to early summer and another three in the fall. And Jesus has fulfilled the first four. The first one was Passover, and he fulfilled that by being our Passover lamb. He's our sinless savior, and he fulfilled that with the next feast, known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The third feast is called the Feast of First Fruits in Leviticus 23, and he filled that because on the Feast of First Fruits, that was the day that the barley would be lifted up by the priest to bring everyone to him. And Jesus did that for us upon his resurrection. And he also indeed fulfilled 
Pentecost, that wonderful day where he departed but gave us the Holy Spirit in his place. So these feasts and festivals actually tell us the Jesus story. And so we're going to discover Jesus in the remaining feasts, in the fall feasts of where we are right now, and see how they always pointed to Christ as our Savior. There are three feasts in the fall, by the way. The first one is known as, and I'll give you the English and I'll also give you the Hebrew. Uh, The first one is called the Feast of Trumpets, or in Hebrew, Rosh Hashanah. The second one is called the Day of Atonement, or in Hebrew, Yom Kippur. And the third one is called the Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And so what I'm going to do here in this message, will take you through all of them. Oh, wow, guys, you guys are good. You've already got the slides going up. Well, I'll tell you what, let's go back to that first one over there. And, and Gary, don't worry, I'll give you the cue for each and every one. But let's go to the slide right after the title slide because first what I want to do is I want to show you in the scriptures in Leviticus 23 what it says about the Feast of Trumpets. We'll look at the Old Testament application and then we'll see how it's always been about Christ, how he fulfills it in the new and what that means for us today. And let's see. The Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah this particular year fell sundown Friday, September 18th. Let's go on now to our next slide and see what it says in Leviticus chapter 23. Here are the verses. It says, in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 23 through 25, the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, the seventh month, the first of this month, is to be a day of rest for you, a sacred assembly with trumpet blasts. So on this day a long time ago, what God instructed the people to do is he said, when the seventh month of the year comes, blow the trumpets. Now, there were two types of trumpets primarily in ancient Israel. There were silver trumpets, and there were also trumpets made of animal horns or ram's horns, and they were called shofars, and this is one such trumpet. And so on this particular day, on the first day of the seventh month, the trumpet was to be blown, and the question is why? And there's really two reasons. Number one, they didn't have calendars in those days, and they would go by the phases of the moon. They still do. And so the trumpet would be blown to announce that there would be a new month. But the second reason that the trumpet was blown was because this was also considered a new year. A new year to wipe the slate clean and to get right with God and to turn away from your sin and turn to him. And so in that regard, the sound coming out of this trumpet was supposed to be perceived as the voice of God himself calling us to wake up from our spiritual slumber and get right with him. Now, I brought this shofar. By the way, would you like to hear the sound that comes out of it? Yeah, so would I, but anyway. No, no, let me give it a shot. It usually takes a couple of cups of coffee. I had two before I got here, and Jill wanted to ply me with three more, so we may be able to get something out of this. But let me see if I can get a sound out of it this morning. There it is. Wow, I'm tired. No, I'm not. But when the people heard that sound, it had a number of significances to it. And indeed, this trumpet is still blown today. Let's talk about the Old Testament significance and the New Testament fulfillment in Christ. We'll go on now to our next slide. Why was the trumpet blown? And here's where we connect the dots, everybody, from Old Testament to New. 
In the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14 through 16, it tells us the great day of the Lord is near, and it's coming quickly. Hear the sound of the day of the Lord. And when it's here, warriors will cry bitterly, a day of this, the shofar, and the battle cry. And so in ancient times when this trumpet was blown, it was a reminder to the people, get right, because one day the Lord will return. And when he does... Will you be ready for him? Will you be in right relationship with him? Will you have endeavored to turn away from your sin and turn to him because judgment is coming? And we see the fulfillment of this here in the book of Revelation. By the way, you're going to learn a little bit about the book of Revelation this morning. You okay with that? In Revelation chapter 8, it says the seven angels who had these, the seven trumpets, prepared to sound them. And the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. A third of the earth was burned up. So in ancient days when this was blown, it was a reminder that God would one day bring his judgment upon the unrepentant of the earth. Let's go on to this next one. On our next slide here, uh, from 1 Kings chapter 1, let me set up this story for you, why the trumpet was blown. In 1 Kings chapter 1, King David is on his deathbed, and he has two sons, and they're kind of recognizing this in different ways. One of his sons is Solomon, and Solomon is mourning that his father David will soon die. The other son mentioned in this chapter is a son by the name of Adonijah, and Adonijah is throwing a party. And the reason Adonijah is throwing a party is because he realizes when his father David dies, there will be a vacancy for a king. And Adonijah is proclaiming himself king already. And he's inviting everybody to come over to his house for a party. David is on his deathbed. And some of the folks at the party are from David's own administration. And when they find out Adonijah has proclaimed himself the king, they realize that something is wrong. That's not the way it's supposed to be. So they go back and they let David know And David says, no, this is not the way it's supposed to be. What we're going to do is we're going to hold the ceremony for my other son at a place called Gilgal. And here's what happens in 1 Kings 1, 34. David said, there at that city have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him. This is Solomon, the other son, king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. And my friends, ever since that time, Whenever this trumpet was blown, it was to place a new king on the throne. That's the way it was, and guess what? That's the way it will be again. Because one day this trumpet will be blown, and it will be to coronate a new king on the throne. And let me tell you something about this king. His reign will never end. There is no one who comes after him. His reign will be eternal. And it says in Revelation 4, verses 10 and 11, it tells us about this king. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So in the future, when you hear this blown, it's to place this eternal king on the throne. What is his name? It's all about him. Let's go on to the next parallel here. Why blow the trumpet? Genesis 22 Verse 13, this is the story, it's called the binding of Isaac or the Akedah, you know this story, it's heart-wrenching when we read it, no matter how often we read it in the scriptures, Abraham is about to take his one and only son Isaac up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice him and Isaac says, dad, you know, we've got the wood and the altar for the sacrifice, but where's the sacrifice itself? Can you imagine how Abraham must have felt? And actually in the Hebrew, what Abraham said was he said, son, don't worry. God will provide himself 
the sacrifice. And so they get on top, and Abraham is about to take the knife down on Isaac, and an angel of the Lord says, Abraham, stop. Now that I know that you're a man of faith and you're willing to sacrifice your own son, God has a different plan. Isaac's life will be preserved. Take a look in Genesis 22, 13 now. The angel of the Lord said, look in the bushes. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram in the thicket or those bushes, indeed, and caught by its horns. Abraham took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So do you understand what's going on here? God provided an innocent, spotless, blameless ram as a substitutionary sacrifice so that it would die and Isaac might live. And to this day, every time I take a look at this ram's horn, it reminds me of an even better and even greater substitutionary sacrifice who gave his life for us, this innocent, spotless, blameless one, so that we would have the promise of eternal life. He died for us. Praise the Lord. And the parallel to this story, there it is in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These festivals were always about Christ and always will be. Let's take a look now at our next slide here. Why blow the trumpet? Because, my friends, Isaiah told us that one day when you hear this trumpet being blown, it will be God gathering us to himself to worship him. In Isaiah 27, 13, on that day a great shofar will sound. Here it is. And those lost in the land of Ashur will come, those scattered through Egypt, and they'll worship the Lord on Jerusalem's holy mountain. He will gather us to be with him. And of course, that's speaking about Jesus. It's a prophecy of the events of 1 Thessalonians 4. Let me read the verses to you. It says 16 and 17, but I like these verses so much, I'll probably go on to verse 18, just out of habit. It says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the verses go on to say, And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive shall be caught up together with the Lord to meet him in the air, and so we shall always be with him. When I hear this shofar being blown, I'm saying, Lord, one day you are returning to bring us to be with you. A bridegroom coming for his bride. It's all about him. All about him. Always was and always will be. Next one here. We're going to talk about the second of the three festivals, the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. You know what? Uh, By the way, since you have the rabbi here with you this morning, would you like to learn a little bit of Hebrew? Great, three people. <laughs> okay, wait, no, it's, it's, it's okay. I understand. I understand why you've said that, and you've probably said that because you have probably been taught that the vast majority of Hebrew words have the following sound. <laughs> and you don't want to say it because you have people sitting in front of you who like you right now. I understand. I get that. So we'll say it slowly. Yom, ki, poor. You just spoke fluent Hebrew. I am so proud of you. Give yourselves a hand. That was great. That was great. So I have to check in the back. Melissa, are you still in the back? Where's Melissa? Melissa, did did, did Haley say that? Okay, Haley, we got to send you to Israel next year, sweetheart. It's just the way. We'll talk after the service. And, And Yom Kippur means the day of atonement or the day of covering. And I'm so, so glad you said that the right way. And the reason that I had you say that the right way is because the vast majority of people get this thing totally wrong. 
Uh, several years ago, I was speaking at a conference in, in the Jewish Mecca of the United States, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And by the way, do we have anybody here who's originally from West Virginia? Where in West Virginia? Okay, that's the other side of the state. I can tell this story. So, so I'm, I'm doing the, the, the conference at the church, and, and it was the second night, and we're, we're talking about Yom Kippur, and the pastor came out, and he said, he said, well, everybody, we have a special for you tonight. He said, we got Rabbi Jack Zimmerman here with us, and he's going to talk about the festival of Yom Kippur. And I went, oh, my gosh. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, we had a great time, because we always do in West Virginia. But afterward, he said, he said, Rabbi Jack, it was just such a pleasure having you join in with us. I said, well, thank you. It was wonderful. He said, by the way, I say that right? I said, well, not exactly. It's called Yom Kippur. I "I say Yom Kippur. What's that mean? I said, well, you just invited me to come up and talk about an ocean of fish. Yom Kippur means the day of atonement or the day of covering. This is the day that God says, your sins, I got them covered. And so let's see where in Leviticus 23 it talks about this, and then we'll see how it's fulfilled in Christ. Here in Leviticus 23, the verses are actually verses 26 through 32, but let me just give you the first couple of verses, and that'll encapsulate the thought. The Lord said to Moses, the 10th day of this seventh month, that's the day of atonement, Hold a sacred assembly, that means come together as a group to worship Christ, and deny yourselves. And that usually means don't have anything to eat or drink. Take a fast for 24 hours and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Burn some incense in a fire pan at the temple because the aroma will be pleasing to the nostrils of the Lord. Don't work on that day because it's the day of atonement when atonement is made for you before the Lord, your God. You know how there are a lot of Christians who only go to church on Christmas and Easter? And by the way, none of you are those Christians, right? Well, there are also a lot of Jews who only go to their synagogues on two days of the year, the Feast of Trumpets and the Day of Atonement. Those are called their high holy days. And many Jews make sure to go on the Day of Atonement because this is the day that God will forgive you of your sins, but you have to show up. And in ancient times, here's what the people would do. On this day, you would go out among your fields and flocks, and you would get hold of one of your male animals without spot or mark or blemish and bring that animal to the priest. It had to be a perfect sacrifice. This animal would then be slaughtered by you, and the blood would be taken from it. The high priest would go into the inner of the inner of the inner tent of the sanctuary to the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, sprinkle the blood on top of the mercy seat, and guess what? Your sins were cleansed. You're good for a whole nother year. And this is what people did to have their sins atoned for, and it worked really, really well for a long, long time. Until the year 70, and when the year 70 A.D. came, there was a tiny little bit of problem. The problem was the second temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And because there was no more temple and God said the only place you could sacrifice those animals was at the temple, the people said, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Where is our atonement? And so they decided to speak to their rabbis. And in true Jewish fashion, we have a saying, you ask five rabbis a question, you get ten different opinions. 
And the rabbi said, they said, well, since we can't sacrifice animals anymore, let's just do the other stuff. We can have a sacred assembly. We can have a fast. Uh, well, we can't bring the fire offering anymore because that, that was the temple. When the temple stood, do no work on that day, we can take off. And that's what Jewish people have been doing ever since the year 70 and asking God to forgive them. There's a little bit of a problem with that. And let me explain what the problem is. The problem is, and it's actually a good thing, how many of you know that God says, I am the same yesterday, today, and always? The word of God does not change. And a long time ago, God said, if you want to receive forgiveness of your sins, it's got to be by blood shed from a sacrifice. There is no other way, and you can't invent another way. Let me show you. It's on our next slide. It's here, indeed, in the Old Testament from the book of Leviticus 17.11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. And here in 70 AD, the people are saying, oh my gosh, we can't sacrifice animals anymore. How are our sins going to be forgiven? And yet, don't you know that, of course, God had already taken care of that situation 40 years before the temple was destroyed. When Jesus became our once and for all sacrifice and shed his blood for us. And indeed, he also became our high priest who went to the mercy seat. It says in Hebrews 9, 12 that he, Jesus, he didn't go in anymore by means of the blood of bulls and calves. But he entered that most holy place once and for all by his own blood. Amen. And so now each year when the day of atonement comes... I thank God for providing our once and for all atonement in Christ. You know, praise the Lord. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. There is no other way to the Father to have that promise of salvation except through me alone. And this is why. It's all about him, folks. One more festival to tell you about, and we'll go on to our next slide. And in fact, this one just ended just the other day. So we're in the season, and this is the culmination of it. In, uh, it's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or in Hebrew, it's also known as Sukkot. And let's read about it in Leviticus and see how Christ fulfills it. In Leviticus 23, in verses 34 through 46, or 36, God said, Moses, say to the Israelites, the 15th of this seventh month is the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot or the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day, holy convocation, sacred assembly, get together to worship God. Do no work of any kind. For seven days present an offering made by fire to the Lord. There's that incense again. Now let's see because there are some more verses that follow it on our next slide here. Uh, from Leviticus 23. Verses 41 through 43. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year, and it shall be a statute forever throughout all your generations. Celebrated in the seventh month, you shall dwell in booths for seven days outside in October. Tough to do in Wasilla. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I didn't know that. I am the Lord your God. I know that. And so here's what God is saying. He's saying, look, when you get into the land of Israel, I want you to build booths for the people to live in and to dwell in because you may not realize this, but in their 40 years of wilderness wandering, I provided booths or shelters or homes for them. 
And when you think about it, this is amazing and it's so profound because the Israelites, as they're wandering in the desert, they can't find decent water. They can't find decent food, but they've got all the real estate they need. Isn't that great? And when God provided those booths, it was spiritual, my friends, because the people knew who provided it. It was as if God was dwelling with them and they were dwelling with him. That's an important concept. We'll get back to it in a minute. But let's go on to our next slide now. Because here on our next slide, you need to know that this Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Sukkot was one of three appointed times when families were commanded to go up to Jerusalem. And the other times were Passover and Pentecost. In a minute, I'm going to talk about how Jesus observed this festival in John chapter 7. But what would happen is during this particular time, wherever you lived in Israel, you and your family had to go up to the temple in Jerusalem and worship. Now, if you lived in Bethlehem, you and your family could go up and a whole community would go up. And from Bethlehem to the entrance of Bethlehem to the temple in Jerusalem, you know, in a brisk walk, you could probably do it in just under two hours. But what if you lived in the Galilee or what if you lived in Jaffa? It might very well take you a couple of days to walk up and people did. And by the way, when nighttime came, it was really tough for the people to ordinarily, you'd think, see where they were going, especially if they were making a long journey. And that's why at this time in the temple, they had these huge torches lit at the top so that the fires could be seen from these torches miles and miles away. In fact, because of it, the temple went by a certain name at this time. It was called the Light of the World. Now, while this parade is going on from the people coming up to Jerusalem, there's another parade going on inside the temple. The high priest gets hold of a gold pitcher, and he says to several men, get behind me and march with me and play your musical instruments because we're going to exit the temple. And they would leave the temple through one of the gates as the priest was holding this pitcher. They would be walking, and he would be taking them to walk outside the water gate. This is long before Nixon. Don't even go there. So they walk outside the water gate and they'll go to the pool of Siloam, a pool with healing prophecies. And the the priest scoops up this water, this water, by the way, known as living water. And he would take this living water and what would he do with it? Well, I'll tell you what in in just a minute, but let's find out how Jesus celebrated this. His story is in John chapter 7. Let's go on to our next slide. In John chapter 7, I want to talk about how Jesus observed this festival. John chapter 7 begins by saying, after this, pause. In order for us to understand this, we need to know what this is or what this was. So let me tell you what it was. In the preceding chapter, in John 6, there's a spot where Jesus is speaking to the crowds and it's massive and they're hanging on his every word. And at one point, Jesus says, okay, now that you're listening to everything that I'm saying, here's what I want you to do next. You must eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. What do you say? And at that point, so many of the people said, you were doing so well until you told us to do that. Bye. It's true, it's in the scriptures. And so after that, or after this, Jesus went around in the Galilee. That's the northern part of Israel. He didn't want to go down to the temple area in Jerusalem near Judea. Why? Well, probably because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. That's a good reason to stay away at any time of the year. But what do you do when Sukkot comes and God commands you to go to that area where people want to kill you? 
When the feast, the festival of tabernacles was near, his brothers said to him, Jesus, you've got to leave Galilee and go to Judea. That sounds like really good advice. Why? So that your disciples there may see the works you do? No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Oh my gosh, wrong motivation. Yes, his brothers wanted him to go down to the festival, but not to be obedient to God the Father, but to be a celebrity so that everybody would come over, do a miracle for us. You're amazing. You're the most terrific thing. See, his brothers didn't get his calling. His idea was not to do miracles to impress. His idea was to heal and show the truth and love of the one true God alone. And so what what would happen is, by the way, that's why it says even his own brothers didn't believe in him. And, And the story continues kind of funny. Jesus says to his brothers, he said, you know what? You guys go to the feast. I'm not not going. It's not yet my time. Well, it's everybody's time if you're Jewish, but what Jesus was referring to was it's not yet his time to be glorified. That would come six months later at Passover at the cross. You guys go to the feast. I'm not going. So his brothers went to the feast. And then guess what Jesus did after that? He decided to go. But wait a minute. He said he wasn't going. Did Jesus lie? Of course not. He wasn't going. With them... But now that they were gone, Jesus went to the feast. And when he went to the feast, it was the last day of the feast. And on that last day of the feast, the priest would take that golden pitcher of living water and he would pour the water on the altar to wash away the blood from the sacrifices that took place all that week. And Jesus is looking at that. And as he's seeing that living water being poured out on a temporary sacrifice... He knows that it's all fulfilled in him. And that's why he says this in our next slide here. In, uh, actually, you can go on to the next one. In John chapter 7, verse 37, Jesus says, He who drinks from me will never thirst. Streams of living water will flow through him. Guys, this is all about Christ. And here's the culmination of this teaching. It began with God saying, I want you to dwell in booths because I provided booths for you in the wilderness. And when I did, it was me dwelling with you and you dwelling with me. And guess what? It's going to happen again. But when it happens again, it's going to be so much more than spiritual because it'll be his second coming. Prophesied and to be fulfilled in Revelation 21.3. Here it is, everybody. Next verse. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will dwell with them and be their God. These festivals during this time of the year have always been the Jesus story talking about his return and his acknowledgement that he's our once and for all sacrifice and there's no other way. And upon his second coming, will we be ready and it's not a question to ask and answer later it's a question that needs to be faced right here and right now and let me explain why i'll just share a personal story with you this month is almost a year just about a year to the day last year i was i was driving in in oklahoma 
And uh, I was driving on a road that was an intersecting road, and a gentleman driving a pickup truck was heading toward the intersecting road where there was a stop sign, and I'm watching him, and I'm saying, usually when you know there's a stop sign, you slow down, and he's going faster and faster and faster and faster, and he said he's not going to make it. On the other side of this road, there was a truck coming the other way, and I said, I see it coming. Bam! It was like an explosion. Unfortunately, I could not stop in time, and that second truck that was hit went right into me head on, and I'm in a Toyota Camry, and I'm dealing with Ford F-250s, guy. My car, all the airbags went out, it spun around, I couldn't get out the driver's side door, had to throw myself out the passenger side door onto the grass in the rain. The ambulance came, took me to the hospital, I was in the emergency room, the doctor took the x-rays, he came back in a half an hour later. He said, I don't understand this. You shouldn't be here right now. You don't even have any broken bones. You must be the luckiest patient I've ever seen, I said, Doc. Oh, no, no, no. It doesn't have anything to do with luck. It has everything to do with the God I serve. Everything. OHP, Oklahoma Highway Patrol Trooper, came into the room and interviewed me, got my record of the accident, and I said, Trooper, I said, there were obviously three vehicles involved, me and two other trucks. I said, so how many others were in each truck? He said, just the driver. I said, well, how are they? He said, um, they didn't make it. You're the only one who survived this thing. But here's why I'm saying this to you. I'm saying this to you because I have to consider, and Pastor, we've got to consider the real possibility that you have heard altar calls before where somebody says to you, listen, what if you're not here tomorrow? And you've probably said, well, you know, I'm, that's not what I'm, I'm planning to be here. I get it. I was not almost here tomorrow. That close. And what if I hadn't given my life to Christ a long, long time before, thanks to my wonderful wife? I wouldn't have that promise of heaven. But I have it now, and the question is, do you? And look, get any preconceived notions out of your mind because we love to make up doctrines and theologies that have no root in the Bible whatsoever. Well, there are many paths to God, and I'm a good person. There's only one way. And you may be a good person, but you might still have just a tiny bit of sin. And even if that sin is so minute that you could only see it in an electron microscope, guess what? Sin is not allowed in heaven. I don't care how minimal it is. God's not going to allow sin. That means you have to get rid of that sin before you have the entrance to heaven. And here's a clue. You can't get rid of it on your own. The Day of Atonement said, here's how you get rid of it. It's only through the blood. From that once and for all sacrifice. Because he shed his blood, went through that grueling sacrifice, did it for us because there's no other way. And so if you've never made that commitment before, perhaps this is the day that the Lord has made for you. And in a few moments, we shall rejoice and be glad in it. If you've never made that decision, and let me explain what that decision is. Yes, it's to ask Jesus to come into your heart, cleanse you of your sin. You agree to make him the Lord of your life, that every action, every movement, everything you do, you're going to say, Lord, I want it to be guided by you, not by me first. And there's a proclamation. It's found in Romans 10.9. It's a great memory verse. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord 
and you believe that God the Father raised him from the dead, that's how you're saved. If you've never said that before, that commitment needs to be made, not because a guest rabbi comes and tells you, but because the Word of God does. And so if that's a place where you'd like to be, to have that assurance today, I want to lead you in that prayer. And in fact, you know, Pastor, I don't know how we do it here at Summit, if there's a certain way, but, but you know what? I'll ask you all to close your eyes so that we can spend time, just a few minutes here with the Lord. And, and, and indeed, in a moment, I'm going to lead you in a prayer that leads you into relationship with Jesus. This is a declaration that needs to be said, and after it needs to be said, you basically need to give visible evidence that you have said it for the first time. And so I'll say this prayer, and then in a few minutes, we'll ask you to give a visible evidence of it. And, and, and don't worry, it's simply, a, it, it's simply a hand movement. Many of you have done this before. And you can feel free to say these words under your breath. And even if you are already a believer, I'll ask that you would also say it under your breath as well, even though we have that relationship, to encourage others in here who may not yet be at that place. Lord God, I thank you so much for loving me for wanting me to be with you when my time here is done. I know I've done good things, but I also have some things that I have done that I'm not proud of. And those things and the sin that I committed, I must be rid of before I can get into heaven. I thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for me and to shed his blood And I acknowledge that blood that was shed for atonement for my sins. Jesus, come into my heart. Come into my life. Make me a new creation in you. Help me to put you first in my life. And I ask these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. And with with your heads still bowed and your eyes closed, and it's perfectly fine. If you said that prayer for the very, very first time, and listen, this is just between you and God. Don't worry about anybody else aside, sitting aside you, beside you. If you said that prayer for the first time, I'll just ask that you would give that visible evidence of it and just raise your hands so that we here at Summit can pray for you long after this service is done. I, I, I won't extend this and wait for people to raise their hands. I believe that gets too showy. I'm not about that. But if you've prayed that prayer for the very, very first time today, just slip up your hand and, I, and I'll say amen and we'll continue to pray for you. If there's anybody here who wants to, that's fine. And if there's folks here who feel uncomfortable about doing so, that's fine as well because here's what I'd like you to do. And you can feel free to open up your eyes at this time. Sometime after the service today, or as soon as possible, I want you to go speak to Pastor Milt. I want you to let him know that you were touched by what was said at this service and that you want to follow this path in Christ. Because let me tell you something, and I know that this is true about Summit, because we're not simply here to make converts. Jesus was not about making converts. He was about making disciples. So guys, this is not a one-time thing. This is not where, hey, you said the prayer, great, you're a believer now, see you next time. This is a wonderful spiritual path that you now can have the opportunity to walk out, and we encourage you.
along the way. Amen? Praise the Lord. Here's what I want to do now as we close. Pastor, if I have just a couple more minutes to, uh, to do so. First of all, thank you so much for having me here today and, and for all of you for coming. Did, uh, did you learn a little bit this morning, by the way? We have a better handle on our Savior and how he fulfills the word of God. Amen. When you came in, uh, our, our ushers, and thank you for doing this, gave you a card from Jewish Voice Ministries International. I'll ask that you would take that card out now. I want to tell you just a little bit more uh, about the ministry. Uh, you know, about 50, 60 years ago, there were many, many ministries that were preaching the gospel out of the New Testament. And a whole lot of Gentiles were getting saved and coming to Christ, but not a lot of Jews because <laughs> they didn't read the New Testament. And so this ministry came along to share the gospel, not only with all people, but they said, you know, we've got to bring Jewish people to Christ as well, and we've been doing it ever since. And at the beginning of the service, Pastor Milt reminds you, indeed, God says in Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse those who curse Israel. The greatest way of blessing Israel is by sharing the gospel. Greatest way to bless anybody. Here's what I want you to do. On those cards... I want, and our ministry wants to keep in touch with you. And so while I'm speaking now, if you haven't already done it, fill out the card. You'll see name, address, city, and state, and the church. And the card is in two parts. Tear it at the perforation. So once you've filled out that card, take it, tear it off at the perforation. Keep the smaller part of the card for you. That's our ministry's info. Give me back the larger part of the card. I will bring it back to Jewish Voice Ministries. And yes, we'll put you on our mailing list. Now, people sometimes panic when we say that, but don't worry, because here's what you need to know. The materials we will send you and keep you in touch will be free. And... Uh, uh, no, we don't stuff your mailbox, and no, we don't sell your name to telemarketers, at least not anymore. But anyway, uh, but fill out that card, you'll be hearing from us. And also on the bottom of the card, there are several boxes. There's one that says go. That's for our medical missions overseas clinics in places like Ethiopia and Zimbabwe, where we bring doctors, dentists, and eye surgeons to provide medical care and healing for thousands of people who have no medical care at all and who would otherwise die. And you know, when we do that for them, they want to know what God we believe in, and we tell them, and a whole lot of people come to Christ. And so if you're in the medical field, check the go box. We need you to join us. If you're not in the medical field, check the go box. We need you to join us because you don't need a medical degree to pray for someone and, and, and share the gospel with them. Back of the card, guys, this is between you and the Lord. It's for uh, an offering, a donation, or contribution. Some people do it by credit or debit card to fund the work of our ministry. A couple of uh, uh, materials to tell you about, and then, Pastor, I'll close with a, a blessing from Scripture, from the book of Numbers. Uh, I, I have, my gosh, only a few of them left. This is called the Tree of Life version of the Bible. And uh, the reason that I love it is because oftentimes as pastors were asked, what's your favorite Bible version? And my answer is all of them. Because there's not one Bible version that gets it right. But I really love this because it goes back to the original Hebrew and gives it to you in the English understanding. Uh, best way, by the way, for me, one of the greatest ways to test the Bible is to look at Romans 10.4. Because that's one of the most mistranslated verses in Scripture. Your Bible probably in Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law. And guess what? 
what we did this morning in showing Christ, that's the law fulfilled in him. It's a bad translation. And by the way, the Greek word for end is telos, and it doesn't mean end as an overdone with finished. It means purpose or target or goal or culmination. And so when somebody gave me this Bible and said, tell me what you think, I said, let me take a look at Romans 10.4. And it said, for Messiah is the goal of the Torah. Yes. That's what a Bible should say. So I've got that out there for you. Uh, three CD set on end time Bible prophecy called The Rabbi Looks at the Last Days. I teach a session on here. Our executive director, Rabbi Jonathan Burnus, does. And Walid Shobat, a former Palestinian terrorist who gave his life to Christ, talks about what Islam really believes. And... Uh, I think what I'd like to do now is close with a blessing over each and every one of you. Once again, Pastor, thank you for having me come. And uh, you've probably heard this blessing before in English. It comes from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26. It's called the priestly blessing or the Aaronic benediction. I will say it over you first in English, and then I will sing it over you in the original Hebrew. And after I do that, give me, oh, I don't know, about a 10-second head start to go to the materials table. And on the way out, if you'd like, you can give me your cards that you filled out or pick up some materials or, 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 or just give a hug or a handshake or whatever it is. I'd love to meet as many of you as possible. And don't forget to meet Pastor and his wife in the coffee area after the service as well. Amen? Please receive this blessing. And by the way, you can remain seated or you can stand, whichever one you prefer. From the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, first in English, to each and every one who's come and those who were not able to but wanted to, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord our God lift up his countenance upon you and may he grant you his peace. And sung in the Hebrew, it sounds this way. Yivarechecho Adonai Veyishmarecho Yaher Adonai Pono velecha veheyechunecha Yiso Adonai Pono velecha Viyasem Shalom And all of God's people said. God bless you, everyone. Have a wonderful Sunday. And may the Lord give you peace. Praise God. We'll see you out there in a few minutes. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. We look forward to connecting with you next time. And don't forget, you can support us by giving through the Church Center app or by going online at summitwc.com give.